1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to pray for us before we dive into our, our message today. So let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this place. That there would be a genuine desire in our hearts to know you, to know you well, and to know you rightly. And Lord, as we begin looking at misconceptions of the Christian faith, I pray that there would be a, a changing of our hearts so that we would constantly be in line with what your word tells us about who you are and what you want from us. I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. So over the last several years, I've made it a habit uh, over the summer. We, we typically study books of the Bible here. Uh, and over the last few summers, we have taken a break from whatever Bible, that Bible book that we've been studying. And then we jump into the Psalms. There's several reasons why I choose to do this. Number one is, you know, people are traveling a lot. And so when you're actually working sequentially through a book of the Bible, people miss a lot because of traveling and, and all of that. And so I don't want people to miss a portion of the narrative. And so I feel like it's a good time to take a break so that that doesn't happen. Uh, the second reason I do this is because it allows us some time we, we can take a step back where we're not in the minutia of the biblical narrative and so it provides us with an opportunity to step back and look at some larger theological concepts uh, some doctrines that might not be included in the the book that we're studying at the moment uh, and some of the books that we've studied they've taken a really long time to get through i mean we went through the book of matthew and we followed that up with the book of acts and so uh, that was that was a long time in those books, and so this is it, it's a good idea to pull back from that from time to time and see what else we can find uh, in Scripture. But this year, I have decided to go a different route other than studying some of the Psalms, uh, since the women's group is currently studying Psalms uh, on Wednesday evenings. Uh, I thought we might take the opportunity to look at several misconceptions. Uh, about the Christian faith that I've heard throughout the years. Uh, some of these misconceptions, they come from outside of the church as the watching world. They hear some stuff, they mess up some of that stuff, and then they start saying it as though that's what we believe. Uh, and then we've got some misconceptions that are from inside the church, people who have been in it, they've seen it forever, uh, but somewhere along the line, some of this information got passed down and they just cling to it, and, and it's just not actually true. Uh, so what, one of the things that I, I do want to point out as we start looking at some of these uh, concepts is that um, if you've recently said this to anyone, I'm not singling you out in this. This is not me being like, well, that's wrong. i got to write that on my list, right? So that's not what I'm doing here. Nobody's pulled me aside uh, and said, hey, you need to address this because this person believes such and such. Like, nobody's done that. I'm not stalking your social media sites and, and seeing if you've got any theological errors that you're posting out there. Um, each one of these topics that we're going to look at over the next nine weeks are things that I've heard personally misstated or I've seen some people post on Facebook. Um, but if you've said any of this to anyone recently, don't take this personally. It's not, I'm not coming after you, I promise. Um, the first misconception that I want to address today is the idea that God will never give you more than you can handle. I'm sure that you have heard that before. I guarantee you if you've been around church folk for a while and you've ever gone through a, 
a difficult time, there has been some well-meaning soul who's taken the opportunity to tell you not to worry about all the difficult things that you're going through in your life because God promises in Scripture to never give you more than you can handle. Right? It's meant to be an uplifting word of encouragement, but it's also wrong. You, you, there's no place in the Bible where you will ever find God promises that you will never experience more than you are capable of. Of handling. In fact, the promises are pretty much the exact opposite of that. When you look through the promises of Scripture, we see things like this from John 16:33, where Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous because I have conquered the world. These are the types of promises. Or we see this statement uh, just a chapter earlier. John 15, 18 to 21, where Jesus is again speaking to his disciples, and he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know who sent me. No, we're, we're not promised that we will never face more than we can handle. We are promised that if we openly follow Jesus, if we actively follow Jesus with our life, we're going to be persecuted and we're going to experience difficulties in our life. So how is it possible since, I mean, this is rampant throughout the New Testament. We constantly see the Lord telling us that there's going to be problems. There's going, we're supposed to take up our cross, die daily to ourselves, and follow Him. So how is it possible that we can have such a, a, a vast misconception here? I've, I've heard this my whole life. How is it possible that we can see all this in Scripture and then hear this when we're going through times of difficulty? Right? Well, I think, for one, I think it's just wishful thinking. Right? It's, it's a desire in the human heart not to experience suffering. And so we, we tell people that, and it's kind of like us speaking to ourselves. We want to actually believe that in and of ourselves. Right? We want it to be true. We want every single problem that we face to go away once we start following Jesus. But unfortunately, that's simply not the case. And, and a lot of times, for a lot of Christians, the problems significantly start once they begin following Christ. Um, but I think one of the main reasons why we constantly see this, this pops up over and over again, is that people have a misconception or a misinterpretation of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which is why I wanted you to turn there. I want you to look at it. That verse says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has come upon you except that what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. And so what Paul is saying here is that in the face of every temptation that we ever encounter, there is always going to be a way to avoid falling into sin that is presented through that temptation. God always provides a way out for his people. 
We never have to give in to the temptations that we face and any excuse that we make because we're really prone to that. Right? I had to respond this way because of this. I had to do that because of this. Right? Basically, what, what this is saying is that any excuse that we make for our sins is simply that. It's an excuse. Right? We always have a way out, and therefore we are always responsible for the decisions that we make. We can't pass that along to someone else. We can't put it on our circumstances. It is on us when we give in to the temptations that we face. And where this often goes wrong for people in their understanding of what is being said here is they're mistaking temptation for trials. They're twisting that up. Trials and temptations are not the same thing. A trial can be anything that's difficult for us to bear. Some of us look at the trials that other people are going through and we're like, that's not a trial. You're not the one going through it. Right? The more trials we go through, the stronger we get, the more we're able to endure, the more responsible and mature we become in our faith. Again, the plate gets bigger. We're get, we are more capable of dealing with the trials that come to us. But a trial is simply anything that is difficult for us to bear. A temptation, in this sense, is anything that wants, makes us want to bring glory and honor to anything other than God, Or anything that makes us want to go against the nature and character of God. So sometimes we can be tempted to make a little g God out of of good things. Right? Family, work. These types of things, can they're good things. We're supposed to have a love for our family. We're supposed to work. That's what God created us for. But sometimes our passion can be to elevate those things to a place they were never meant to be. And when, it, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. Right? Not my quote. I don't know who originally said it, but I like it. But we can, we can be tempted to elevate things above their station. And, but we can also be tempted to just go against the nature and character of God. And when we do things that go against the nature and character of God, it's sin. And that's always a bad thing. Right? Temptations are always bad. And there's always a way out. Trials are not always bad. Right? It feels bad. It hurts in the moment. But the end result, and sometimes there's no way out of the trial. You just have to endure. You just have to wait until it runs out. But it's not always bad. God intends for the trials to occur when they occur, the way that they occur, so that at the end of it, we will run out of our own strength, and we will turn to Him when we've exhausted ourselves. As we grow in our faith, as we mature, we turn to Him much quicker because we understand that this is going to bring, bring us to the end of ourselves very quickly. But the end goal of these trials is always to draw us to the Father. And I want to I look at three instances in Scripture where this is true. Each one of these trials that, that these people whether one is a group and the other are individuals. But these trials that they face, one, they run out of their own strength very, very fast. And it always points to God in a very specific way. So these, for these instances, the first one I want to point out, uh, we're not reading all this because this, is, this covers chapters and chapters of Scripture. Um, 
But the first instance that I want to point out is Israel's slavery and rescue from Egypt that we find in the beginning of the book of Exodus. All right, so between Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2, there is a period of 400 years that are just not covered. 400 years happen, and Israel has gone into Egypt. Joseph has a good relationship with the Pharaoh at that time. Things are going well for Israel. And after that Pharaoh dies, the next Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't remember all the things that he did for their country. And all of a sudden, he starts seeing these Israelites who are being blessed. They're multiplying. They're becoming very strong. And he becomes afraid. And he decides to put those people under his rule and terror, really. And so for 400 years, Israel experiences this trial of slavery. For 400 years, they are pressed, they are persecuted, and basically they, they run out of a will to live to the point where they begin to call out to God, and then God raises up a man by the name of Moses to deliver his people. Right, Moses is called by God to speak to Pharaoh and demand that God's people are released. And Moses isn't having it. He doesn't want any part of it. Right, he makes all kinds of excuses. Why? Because the situation was more than he could handle on his own. It was too big for him. Right, so he asked God for his brother's help. He said, get Aaron. I, I don't speak well. Get Aaron to come. He can speak for me. Give me some help. And God allows that. And then we see Moses and Aaron, they go before Pharaoh. He, they demand that he lets the people of Israel go. Then Pharaoh says no. And then what happens? Right? Does Moses take out all the guards and they hold Pharaoh at sword point and they say, you will do it. We, we demand it. Right? He goes straight up Jason Bourne on the Pharaoh, right? No. Moses has no power here. He has some signs and wonders that he does to show that what he's saying is true, but he doesn't overthrow the Pharaoh. What happens? God sends plagues. Ten plagues. Let my people go. Okay, fine. That, I don't like that. We'll let them go. And he doesn't. And so God sends another plague, and he doesn't let him go. And he continues this up until the tenth plague, where he kills the firstborn child of every person in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh says, that's enough. Send them out. So they leave, and Pharaoh goes, what am I doing? I'm losing my entire workforce. And he changes his mind, and he pursues after them with force. And all of a sudden, the people of Israel find themselves pressed up against the Red Sea and the overwhelming armies of Pharaoh. And what do we see in Exodus 14? These words. As Pharaoh approached... The Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch your hand out over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. 
As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots, and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And what do we see? The Israelites go through on dry ground, and as the Egyptian warriors go in to, to take them out, God says, nope, and wipes them completely out. That trial was meant to show the power and glory of the Creator God. That trial was meant to have these people cry out to Him for help, realize that they had nothing in and of themselves that were able to do it on their own, and yet they saw the power of God. All right, probably the greatest army in the world at this time could not stand up to the power and might of God the Father. The second thing we see is a man named Gideon. I don't know if you know his story or not. In the, in, in the book of Judges, in chapters 6 through 8, we're introduced to a man named Gideon. Right? In, in verse 1 of chapter 6, we're told that Israel has done evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? We're not told what this evil is, but typically in the Old Testament when we see this, it's because they have started worshiping other gods and they've started participating in pagan practices that goes against the nature and character of God. These things are detestable to the Lord. And so probably what we're seeing here is Israel going into these things. And when Gideon enters this biblical narrative, Israel is being overcome by the Midianites, by the Amalekites, and other people from the east as a consequence for disobeying their God. Right, for seven years, these people come into Israel, they destroy their crops, they destroy their cattle, and we're told that this is a disciplinary action by God against his people. Right? This discipline leads to cries for help from Israel. They turn back to the Lord, the Lord hears their cries for help, and he graciously intervenes to deliver his people, and he does this by this unremarkable man named Gideon. He's, he's nobody from nowhere. It's, it's, he says, I'm not from a big family. Why would you call me to do this? Right? If not for this moment in history, no one would have ever known Gideon's name. Right? Two generations later, after he's dead and his family's dead and his kids are dead, nobody remembers Gideon, if not for what happens here. But what happens here is God calls him to lead Israel into battle against the Midianites. And because he's not a warrior, Gideon is extremely nervous. He asks God to provide signs to show him that this is actually God and that he's actually telling him to do this. And we see three miraculous instances of, of God doing something to show that this is what he wants. The first came when, at the moment that he's speaking to him, he puts food on a rock and it's devoured by fire. And so that gets him started. Gets him out the door. He begins doing the things that God has called him to do. He's tearing down poles that have been worshipped by the people of Israel. He's setting up altars so that they can practice their actual call of sacrifice. He goes out and he raises this army. And all of a sudden, God says, no. He says, no, you've got too many people. He said, yes, you are outnumbered by the Midianites astronomically. And the odds are not in your favor. But... With this many people, you could potentially still win. And so what does he do? He cuts it down. And then he cuts it down again. 
I think it was, what, 10,000 people, and then it goes to 3,000 people, and then it's, what, 300 people? God says, now, now you have no chance. You couldn't possibly have gotten glory or credit from this in any way, shape, or form, so now go and do what I have told you to do. And Gideon goes, and he routs the Midianites with help from the Lord and the Lord alone. There was no chance of Gideon getting the credit. There was no chance of Israel getting the credit. So in this trial that we see, number one, the reason for it was because they were being disciplined by the love of God. We don't always think of it that way, but when we stray away from the Lord and He allows us to experience difficulty, we, we think, well, if you love me, you wouldn't make me go through this. And then he goes, if you love me, I wouldn't have to make you go through this. You have turned your eyes to things that are not good for you. And I will discipline you until you turn your eyes back to me. So he, again, shows his power, his might against the armies of the Midianites. But in the process of that, that whole trial was meant to turn his people's face back to him now some of you may be thinking well this is this is the old testament right maybe maybe we don't have to go through this anymore because the israelites in the book of exodus and gideon they didn't have the whole they didn't have the holy spirit dwelling in them so what about now that we have the holy spirit dwelling within us now can we handle all that god throws at us Well, to answer that question, I want to turn to one other man, and that's the Apostle Paul, and see what he thinks. What does the Apostle Paul think about the idea that God never gives us more than we can handle? Actually, I want you to turn here. It shouldn't be too far from where you are now. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. Now, this is going to require some audience participation, so I want you to pretend you're not Baptist for, for a minute, and it's call and, call and response, okay? So, 2 Corinthians 1, 11 to, or 8 to 11, it says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely, what's the next word? Overwhelmed, I heard. What? Under great pressure. Anybody else have a different translation? Burdened, completely overwhelmed, completely burdened. What was the next statement? Beyond our strength. Right? Will God give you more than you can handle? Yes, He will. Paul says we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. They no longer, they're, they're, what they were going through was so severe, they didn't want to live anymore so that they could get out from underneath this burden. He says in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and He will deliver us. We have put our hope in Him, and He will deliver us again. While you join in helping us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. 
Paul is well acquainted with suffering. Paul gives a a long list of all the things that he has endured because of his faith in Christ. Paul has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, and Paul has endured hardship to the point where he no longer wished to live. We see again Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians verse 12, 7-10. We're shown a struggle that Paul is dealing with, and we don't know exactly what it is. It's just called a thorn in the flesh. That's it, a a trial, a burden. He says in 7 to 10, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, in his weakness, turns to the Lord. He begs the Lord three times to take this away. Now, we're not, this isn't like one day at breakfast he decided to pray for this, at lunch he decided to pray for this, and at dinner he decided to pray for this. But what we're thinking about here is long periods of time that he has prayed for this to be taken away. And after that third time, Paul says, My grace, or God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. The difficulty is not going away. Your situation is not going to change. Why? Because my strength is sufficient. So one of the reasons why God allows us to go through these difficulties is so that when people look at our lives and see us not breaking, not buckling, not because we're strong enough to deal with it, but because we point to God, we cling to God, we share that with the watching world... The world sees what we truly believe. If we could handle it all on our own, if we could just muscle through this, white knuckle it, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, what point is there for God? So one of the reasons that God allows trials into our life for us to be brought low is to prove that we don't have it in us to deal with it on our own. But it also proves to a watching world that we believe that God is enough. That we believe that God is sufficient. And so God constantly presents us with our weaknesses. And Paul says, I will gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. When when we come to the end of ourselves, we get to see the beauty and glory of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-righteous, all-just, loving, gracious, holy Father. This is the reason why God allows them. This is just three reasons. And I'm sure I could go, I could dig deep and I could find so many more of these. Like this were just three that popped into my head. This was easy. What, I, what do I want from you today with this misconception? It's really simple. I don't want you to tell people that God will never give them more than they can handle. I don't want you to lie to people. It's not true. It's simply not true. 
God is going to constantly give you more than you can handle. You might as well get used to the idea. I want you to also imagine being in a trial. And I want you to think about, like Paul was talking about, like I was in this difficult moment to the point of I, I no longer wanted to live. And then having someone come up to you, this glib Christian cliche, and they tell you, as you have been struggling with this for as long as you can remember, it feels like there's no light, there's no hope. And they come and say, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. I mean, what does that mean? It means toughen up. You can do this. Fight harder, fight more, fight stronger, fight better. You can do it. God promises you that you can do it. So it's essentially telling people that you're not enough. You're just not trying hard enough. Quit being lazy. Suck it up. How horrible is this to tell somebody when they may be going through the worst trial of their life? Don't worry. God will never give you more than you can handle. So this is on you. It's no longer God doing this. It's you. You're the problem. And lastly, the last application that I want to give you is that if you are currently enduring a trial that is beyond anything that you can bear, I want you to remember that you were never meant to bear that alone. You were never meant to bear that alone. We were made for community. Ultimately, the community that we have with God. I mean, God is always there. You are never alone enduring any of this by yourself. But also, you were made for the church, and the church was made for you. We are called to bear one another's burdens. We're called to wade into life when life is hard, when it's ugly, when it's dirty. And so, if you are enduring this on your own, you don't have to. Let us know what you are struggling with. Let us help you. And be there when we have those same struggles. It's just a matter of time before it's our turn. I've, I've told you this before, and it's not the most optimistic way to look at life, but with the reality of a sin-cursed world, we are either going into a trial, we are in a trial, or we're just coming out of a trial, and that's it. If you want to look at it glass half empty, right? That's the way it is. So it's going to be your turn at some point. And the time to think rightly about this is not when you're in the midst of the storm. You want to think rightly about it when you're either coming out of it or just before you go back into the next one. So I pray that you would be mindful of this and to think, as I, oh man, this is the pressure's on. It's getting more difficult. I don't know if I can endure this on my own. Then reach out to somebody in this church and let us help you endure that. Let us help you bear that burden and be willing to do that for someone else. Let's pray together. Father, this world often presents us with things that are beyond anything that we can handle on our own. And I pray that we would understand that, one, nothing is too great for you. 
that if we pursue after you and we walk with you, then we will not be, you will not be overwhelmed, even as our strength quickly fails. So I pray that we would lean into you as we deal with these difficulties. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of what your word actually says on this issue. And Lord, that we would be careful with how we present these glib sayings that we think are encouraging but truly aren't. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to share this burden with one another. That we would be open-handed with our time, talent, treasures so that we can help those who are having difficulties. And Lord, that we would not be so prideful or so caught up in uh, our desire to, to not weigh someone else down that we don't share this with other people. This is what the church is for. So help us to be the church. Help us to love one another in such a way that no one deals with these trials alone. Help us to understand that these trials that we may face are meant to either show your glory, to, to discipline us as we have walked away, or to show that we need you. So if we're struggling with any of that here today, Lord, I pray that our hearts would change, that we would see you rightly, and we would pursue you with all that we have. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.